Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. My guest today is Ross Barkin. Ross is an award-winning journalist and a former political candidate. Ross ran for state senate in Queens in 2018, where he was endorsed by AOC. He is back to full-time journalism with a column in The Guardian and frequent contributions to The Nation and Gothamist. He also has work in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, and The Columbia Journalism Review. In both 2017 and 2019, he was the recipient of the New York Press Club's Award for Distinguished Newspaper Commentary. He now teaches journalism at NYU and St. Joseph's College. He also created a popular newsletter, Political Currents, on New York and national affairs. As always, links to his work will be found in the show notes. Ross's Substack newsletter, Political Currents, is an amazing font of information on New York City politics and is a big part of what uh, led me to discovering him and, and bringing him on. In today's episode, we discuss his experience running for state senate, the curse of fundraising, and how running for office destroys your social life, how small-dollar digital fundraising is fueling left-wing candidates, what a DSA endorsement means and why Ross thinks he did not get it, why he thinks he didn't win, what you should consider when deciding whether to run for office, how de Blasio and Cuomo bungled New York's COVID response, why Cuomo refuses to raise taxes on the wealthy, the lack of any meaningful action to reduce the power of the NYPD, why Ross doesn't support police abolition, and why we think the case for prison abolition is stronger, Bernie's loss, and the progress the left has made in recent years. We close on a positive conversation about the election of five DSA-endorsed candidates to statewide office in New York uh, in the last few months. Um, these include a few candidates for state assembly and state senate. And I think this is a really big political story that's just not really been covered that adequately because it's not national office. Uh, but the last time there were five statewide officers uh, who were socialists in New York was 1920. And uh, I think this bodes very well for the future of politics in New York. And uh, we Ross is just an absolute expert in this topic. So it was great to talk with him about it. Here is Ross Barkin. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Very, very excited to be on and chat. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of heard about you through a few different avenues around the same time. Um, you have this Substack, which is like the the new thing now, which is like what an email listserv that you send newsletters out like on a pretty regular basis. Yep. Um, and and it was getting shared a lot in like lefty New York politics kind of social media. Uh, but then I also found out that my friend Zaron Mamdani, who just was elected to the state assembly in New York, uh, ran your campaign. Is that correct? Yep, that is correct. Yep, two cool. years ago. Yeah. A wild yeah. and crazy two summers ago. <laughs> yeah, he spoke very highly of you. Um, and I, I've really enjoyed the newsletter and, and reading your work elsewhere. Um, you also write in The Guardian and with The Nation, Gothamist, tons of other places, correct? Yes, yes. I, um, I have a gardening column and I, I contribute... Uh, fairly frequently to the nation, and I do uh, local, a lot of local journalism for for Gothamist. And I, I've written for a bunch of other publications as well. A lot of it on New York um, and national politics and uh, political affairs. You know, I, I've written about other topics as well. Um, but yeah, that that's definitely been a a focus for me for for a while now. Yeah, and I guess I, I just want to start with what was the experience like running for office? What prompt, what prompted you to do it? And uh, 
sneak preview, you did not win. That's why you're talking to me. Um, yes. But uh, <laughs> you, you're doing great work now. So just give us like a little snapshot of, of what that experience so is like. So ru- running for office is is definitely exhilarating. It's it's an ego trip. You know, you need need an ego to do it. There, there's no doubt when you, you sit down and, and you say, it's got to be me. Like, like I, I will be the one to seek this thing out because I believe I will be the best. So no matter how self-effacing a candidate or a politician is, ultimately you are taking that first step, which is very much a, a, aff- a self-affirmation of, of kind of your unique individuality. Um, you know, I, I, I found it a lot of fun for, for, for a lot of reasons. It's also incredibly challenging and time consuming. And that's something if you're on the outside and if you've never worked on a campaign, if you've either only followed them casually or maybe written about it, you don't appreciate how utterly difficult it can be physically and mentally. And that's if you're doing it right and you're trying to win. If you're not trying to win, if you're just trying to enjoy yourself or you've got such a big movement or machine behind you, you don't have to do that much and you can coast on that, then running for office is no big deal. But if you're someone who's really starting from the ground up and you're really starting with nothing or close to nothing, it, it's very challenging. You know, you are working 14-hour days, 15-hour days. You are not sleeping much. You're waking up very early. You're going to bed late at night. Pre-COVID, you're knocking on doors almost every day. I, I knocked on doors literally every day. I was in the subway station five days a week from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. I was on the doors, uh, thanks to Zoran, who is a taskmaster extraordinaire you know, from about 4.30 or so till, you know, I would say maybe 8.30, maybe 9, you know, as the summer wore on, you know, my election was in September. So we were campaigning throughout the summer. So we had a lot of daylight to take advantage of. And it's, and and the other very um, difficult part of it, and the most dispiriting, dispiriting part is the fundraising. And no matter how digitally savvy you are, unless you are one of these like once in a million candidates like Bernie Sanders who can just send out an email and raise a million dollars, you have to personally raise a lot of money. And that means getting on the phone to call people. Um, that means hosting fundraisers. That means committing a lot of your time to getting the funds together to run a viable campaign. And what's nice now, if you're a DSA candidate or if you are backed by a movement-type organization that can make fundraising easier for you, um, unfortunately for me, while I had some good support, I was endorsed by the Daily News. Um, I was endorsed by pre-Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when she was merely a Democratic nominee. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know and that one. That's, that's, that's she's, cool. She's gotten stingier with endorsements since. I was one of the last to make it through the wickets. But, you know, her endorsement at the time was in August of 2018. It was meaningful, but it, it was not raining thousands and thousands of dollars upon us. So, you know, 
unless you're kind of a, a, a DSA candidate who can take advantage of an organization that will help fundraise for you, or you have a lot of labor unions, you have some kind of external support, the fundraising's on you. It's, it's on you and your work and how much work you want to put in. And that's a very big part of it. Um, if you're running for Congress or for a state legislative office in New York, fundraising is very, very crucial and very time consuming. If you're running for a city office in New York, like the city council, fortunately, there's a very generous matching funds program, which is very easy to take advantage of. And it, it makes fundraising a hundred times easier. If I had a matching funds program, I could have fundraised for a couple of months and been done and been on my way and, and, and maxed out. But that was not the case. Um, so I was fundraising throughout my campaign from the beginning in October 2017 to the end in September 18. Um, you know, you, you need, you're in constant need of money. So that's always this burden that's upon you. And, and, and it's the most unfortunate part of politics because it's very easy to sell out. Um, you know, if you take on certain positions or if you cater to certain people, you can find yourself to certain avenues of um, cash that you wouldn't have otherwise. So that is always a temptation. And you have to be aware of where your money is coming from, too. We are one of the very early campaigns to turn away real estate developer donations that really had just come into vogue. And I was very much an outspoken critic, as I am still, of the real estate industry's hold on New York politics. So we um, did not take developer money. I actually had to return a check from a uh, not quite a developer, but someone who owned a you know it was basically a commercial landlord. So that that also w went against the spirit of what we were doing. So I had to return a thousand dollars at one point. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it is running for office is, is very much, if you're doing it right, there is no time for anything else. There's no time for friends. There's no time for family. There's no time for your significant other, you know, it can create tension in personal relationships. And it, it, it's, it's ultimately extremely rewarding. And I, I, I made a lot of great friends and I learned so much more about people. Uh, you meet thousands and thousands of people, you know, dealing with people. It, it definitely helped inform my journalism in new ways, which was very exciting. And, um, you know, it, you take all of it together and it's an experience that I, I wouldn't trade for anything. Uh, but it's a very taxing experience, and and I I'm nostalgic for it. But I don't miss it, if that makes sense. You know, I have time now. I have much easier days. I have time to do interviews like these and talk. This would not be possible if I were running for office. I would say ten minutes and we're out. If I give yeah. you ten minutes, and now I've got time, and time is very precious. Yeah. No, there's a bunch of places I want to go. Um, but the first one is, you know, there's this idea that like big money corrupts politics and that, you know, raising money makes politicians sell out, as you mentioned. But then there's also this like kind of contrary idea that the most successful small dollar fundraisers are actually like the most left wing candidates, like in Bernie Sanders, AOC. Um, these candidates just can raise a, a ton of money because at least I don't know as much about the state level, but at the federal level, there are, are caps 
of a few thousand dollars that you can donate to any given candidate, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of money for like most people, but you can't just rely on like a handful of huge donors setting aside the question of super PACs. If you're just raising money for your campaign, yes. the Bernie Sanders style of fundraising, where you speak to issues that people care about and get really passionate about um, and build this huge, huge base of donors actually might empower left-wing candidates. Do you think there's like any truth in that argument? Yeah, well, well, I, well I think the, the digital revolution fundraising has been the single biggest boon to left-wing politics locally and nationally. You know, I use the example of DSA um, in New York. You know, and, DSA, and for listeners, is a Democratic Socialist of America for anybody yes. who's not super plugged into this stuff. <laughs> um, you know, they could not be winning the races that they're winning or even competing without the power of small dollar online fundraising. Before the internet, it was very hard to raise money if you weren't a political insider or a particularly well-wired, charismatic outsider. Remember, before the internet, you had fundraisers by having events, by sending letters to people, by calling up on the phone, and your network was incredibly crucial. Your network still matters a lot, but if you can catch fire online, or if you're part of a movement organization like DSA, um, you know, like the Working Families Party too, which has a very big fundraising list, you are able to command um, a lot of small dollar donations. And this new environment we're in has really, in some ways, negated the power of super PACs. And, and that's been kind of a fascinating development if we go back to 2012 or so sort of post-Citizens United, it really looked like super PACs were going to own politics for the foreseeable future. And obviously, Citizens United was a disastrous a Supreme Court decision. The positive development has been that the growth of digital fundraising has somewhat blunted the force of super PACs. You, know, you look at Bernie Sanders ran two viable national campaigns without a super PAC. You know, the... The, the most, I would say, I'm, try, I'm trying to phrase this correctly, um, you know, lo- locally super PACs can still hold great sway in congressional races, in, in even lower level races. At the same time, you look at candidates like a Jamal Bowman who unseated Elliot Engel who had tons of outside money. But Jamal Bowman had this emer- what I call this emerging progressive um, sort of industrial complex, for lack of a better <laughs> word. And I don't use that word negatively. I use it with a positive connotation. And that's this combination of digital fundraising, of movement-based organizations like the Working Families Party, DSA, Sunrise Movement. You, know, you, you have this growing infrastructure of, of left organizations that are really coming together to raise a lot of money for good progressive candidates who are able to catch fire. Look at um, Corey Bush out in St. Louis. You know, I believe she outraised Lacey Clay. I'd have to go back and look at the filings, but she raised a lot of money. She was not getting outraised. Charles Booker, unfortunately, was outraised by Amy McGrath. And, and I have a friend who worked on the Booker campaign, and he wrote a very good piece in The Nation lamenting that these progressive organizations didn't get involved in the race sooner. Had they had, he probably would have won. Um, 
so we're in an environment where money absolutely matters and, and and for local races you know raising that initial amount of money is very difficult because you're not getting help from these movement organizations out of the gate and that's another discussion we can have about why that doesn't happen um but we are in a very fascinating era where even Donald Trump, no one thinks of Donald Trump as a small dollar fundraiser, but he is. He's a oligarch, wannabe oligarch bigot who, who is not someone we associate with that sort of fundraising style, but he is not someone who is just going to rich people for money, though he is. He yeah. also is a prolific small dollar fundraiser, and he's probably the first Republican, I would say, to be a prolific small dollar fundraiser. Certainly Democrats, beginning with Obama, and now Bernie took it to levels we'd never seen. And, and you're even seeing someone like Joe Biden, who's very plotting. He even has a small dollar fundraising operation now, and you don't hear a lot about his super PAC. I believe he has one. Um, so the the era has has evolved in a way I, I don't think a lot of people would have predicted around 2012 or 2013. Yeah, no, it, it is really interesting, and I think there's this like conception among some people who follow politics that like the big money is the problem, and Citizens United like broke America. Um, I, I have some disagreements with that view, but I, I wouldn't really have predicted that uh, you'd see small dollar donors becoming more important and. It's also interesting because at the presidential level, the evidence is not really strong that people who raise more money end up winning. But yeah. like the further down ballot you go to more and more local races, um, money really does matter. And it's just yes. kind of like intuitive. You know, you get a lot more primaries where ideological sorting may not be as clear. Um, and then there's people who just like don't know if you if you have name recognition, if you can plaster your poster over the neighborhood or like get on local news or wh whatever it is. Um, you know, get ads out there, you can reach a lot more people. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's no doubt um, on the presidential level, money becomes, you, you, you reach a saturation point, and it's not really clear after a while, if you're the Democratic or the Republican nominee for president, how much it really matters if you're, you know, ahead or behind the fundraising game. You know, you look at... Um, for example, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton outraised and outspent Donald Trump, and she did not win the electoral college. Even now, you know, when you, when you have a presidential race, you have two candidates who are incredibly well known, right? I'd say nine out of more than nine out of ten people know who they're voting for without even thinking twice. They don't need to be persuaded. You you have a, an ever shrinking number of persuadable voters. You have the extreme polarization of the electorate, which is, has continued to reduce the number of swing states, states that are even remotely in play. And that all contributes to the fact that fundraising and spending on the, on the presidential level once you hit a certain point, doesn't mean very much. And if you're the nominee of a major party, you're going to, by default, raise a lot of money, right? You are one step away from the presidency. People will give you money. Yeah, at, but conversely, yes, on the local level, the further down you go, every dollar means a lot. If you're in a crowded Democratic primary, if, if you can keep pace with the competition or outraise the competition, 
you are in better position in a congressional race, certainly in a, in a primary, you know, you need money to be viable. Um, you can win getting outspent, you know, and, and, and this is also a question of when do you hit that saturation point? And it really depends on the district, depends on the state. Um, but, but I do believe that point exists. So uh, the, the key as far as I've seen is to raise enough to be viable. Whatever that viability threshold is depends on where you are. Um, but once you're viable and if you have a good campaign, you're in, the, you're in competition to win. And even if you're getting outspent, if you're able to spend enough to get your message to people, that will make you very competitive. So, you know, Jamal Bowman, for example, I think raised and spent a million or something. Maybe Elliot Engel did two or three. You know, I'd have to check uh, those numbers. But, you know, Bowman was outspent, but a million dollars isn't nothing. So he, he was already at a level he can run TV at. So, you know, if you hit that threshold, you are in competition. Um, and, and that seems to be how it plays out. So money is very relevant. Um, and then once you reach a certain point, perhaps its relevancy decreases a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to switch over to, um, you mentioned democratic socials of America, DSA, um, and you sought their endorsement, but did not get it. And yes. with some organizations, it's like, you must've fucked up somehow. And, and DSA is actually like one of the hardest endorsements, if not the hardest endorsement to get in New York politics. Um, because it, it really means like you're getting people mobilizing, knocking doors, making phone calls, doing events for you um, in a way that like working families or other organizations just don't really muster the same kind of boots on the ground. Yes. So what, what, what a lot of people don't understand about DSA and people on the outside is they're, they're very particular with who they endorse. They don't like endorsing a lot of candidates, especially in New York. They have the, an overriding concern about capacity. You know, what can they dedicate to a specific campaign? Because they are a volunteer-run organization, and they do commit a lot to a candidate. They don't like to spread themselves thin. Very different approach from a labor union. You know, a labor union will endorse 10, 10 20 candidates a cycle, but beyond cutting a check to the candidate, and letting them run the union's name on one of their mailers, there's no action. They don't do anything. DSA is one of the very few endorsers in New York, certainly, that actually matters because if they're behind you, they are volunteering their effort. They are sending dozens, if not hundreds of volunteers to your campaign to knock on doors and make phone calls. And that is so crucial. And now they've introduced a new element of online fundraising where they've become very savvy at raising money for their candidates. And we, we saw this a lot in the June primaries where their slate, would, you know, which is only four candidates on the, on the um, state level, all won. And they all fundraised pretty well. They weren't getting outspent by the competition in some races they were outspending their opponents so that's something no one would have ever seen a few years ago a, a democratic socialist candidate outspending an incumbent democrat or outspending an establishment backed democrat would have been unthinkable a few years ago and that's that's the power of online fundraising so you know i i sought the endorsement um when i ran they only endorsed one state senate senate candidate in that cycle 
which is Julia Salazar, who overcame a lot of controversy to win, and, and she is now a state senator. So they picked correctly there. Um, and and they are, you know, very attentive endorsers. They give you a very long questionnaire. You go to their meeting. You answer a lot of questions. They ask a lot of questions. They're good pointed questions, and you've got to be on your toes because they are constantly trying to sniff out the pretenders, right? A lot of people speak socialists, but are they socialists? Are they committed to the cause? Are they part of the movement or not? So that is a big part of their project too. And understandably so, it's an endorsement now a lot of people want. I would say it is maybe one of the most sought after endorsements in New York City, certainly up there with the big labor unions and you know, maybe AOC sitting at the top of the heap. Um, and they've grown very, very fast. DSA, though it's existed since the early 1980s, people don't even realize, only became political force in New York City after the 2016 election. So you're talking about three years, and they're already one of the most significant political organizations in the city and state. So... That, that on its own is, is pretty unique. They're not perfect. Um, they make mistakes. And, you know, but for a volunteer-run organization, they are quite remarkable. Yeah, and, and do you know why you didn't get the endorsement? I would, it's a good question. You know, I, I, I think I definitely lost out to Julia because Julia was a longtime DSA member, long time in context. Most people who are in DSA now are members since, you know, 2016 or 2017. I joined in 2017 once I announced my candidacy. As a journalist, I was not a member of DSA. I've since left because as a journalist, I don't want, you know, I kind of want to be a bit removed from these organizations, even though I know a lot of people in them and, and, and you know, I have friends in them, but uh, I try to maintain some distance. Um, so I think, on one, I think on one hand, Julia was definitely a, a more, um, you know, attractive candidate because she was a longer time DSA member. She had been very involved in DSA. She, AOC and I were not involved in DSA. Um, but her candidacy obviously is very was quite unique. I was in a Democratic primary to take on a Republican incumbent, so for them, I was a tricky case because I am vying with another establishment-backed Democrat who'd end up defeating me to then run against a Republican. It was not a straight Democratic primary against a Democratic incumbent, so that was a level of. Uh, se several hoops, you know, to jump through for them. So uh, understandably, that was a tough sell, especially given I was not a, I was not, I was not a committed DSA member before I, I announced my run for state senate. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. so it kind of makes sense, right? Like, so most of these uh, districts for state senate or state assembly it's really heavily democratic. And if you win the democratic nomination, you're, you're in. Yeah. It's, it's in, one, right? it's one election. I had two, I had two elections to worry about. Yeah. And, <laughs> and did the Democrat who beat you ultimately win the seat? Yeah, he did. And this was Which, the IDC member, right? Who he beat or so no. So he, so he, no. So I, he, um, th this was, he, he, he was, so I, I was running for a state Senate seat in Brooklyn 
that was gerrymandered for this pretty right-wing Republican who'd been in office way too long named Marty Golden. And I was convinced in 2018 Marty Golden could be beaten. A lot of people thought, like, no, you're nuts um, because the district had been gerrymandered. He'd been in office 15 years. But the thing about Marty Golden is he'd never really gotten a real challenge before. This You'll see this a lot in politics. Politics is very, like, mythology-driven. It's not really a fact driven enterprise as much as it should be. So a politician won't get challenged for a decade or won't get a viable challenge. And people will go, ah, he's unbeatable. What are we going to do? Joe Crowley was unbeatable until AOC runs an actual campaign against him and, and beats him badly. So, you know, Mar Marty Golden was someone too, kind of like Joe Crowley, like a lazy old incumbent who was very out of step with his district, more so than Joe Crowley was. Like this guy was like a pro-Trump, like pro, like law and order very, very conservative, inflammatory uh, Republican. So he, to me, he was a sitting duck. Like someone will run a good campaign against him. He's going to lose. So I figured it'll be me. The other guy I ran against had run against Marty Golden already and lost back in 2012. I was convinced he'd ran a pretty lousy campaign against Marty Golden. So that's why I wanted to run. I'll run a better campaign against Marty Golden. But my opponent, you know, was backed by the, the teachers' union. He's backed by all the elected officials in the district. He raised a bit more money. He, had, he was an establishment candidate, and that can be very hard to overcome. Ultimately, he won the primary. I didn't, and then he narrowly won the general election. It was like 51-49 or something like that. Very close election that uh, he won, and now the Democrats in office and he'll probably stay in office for a while. I don't think that district is going to flip back. So, yeah. you know. And, and your race was actually, your race was very tight, right? It was within 10 points, I think. A little more, yeah. I, was, I got I got 42%. You know, he got 9,000 votes. I got about 6,600 odd votes. So, you know, fair, not not like super tight. You know, he it, it was a comfortable win for him, but we, we made it competitive, you know, certainly within a few thousand votes, you know. Um, there were definitely things I could have done better. You know, after you run a campaign, you really see all the ways your campaign could have been more successful. Uh, you know, you, you Monday morning quarterback the hell out of it, but you learn a lot because when you're in a campaign, especially your first campaign, even if you think you know so much about politics like I did, there's also so much you don't know. And there are just things you, you don't get that then you get later on. Um, I mean, something interesting we did, which I wouldn't do again, is we didn't send a single piece of mail. Like we got, you know, 42%, 6,600 odd votes, not sending a single mailer out to anyone. That was in part because we were very committed to this like door knocking um, strategy. And then it was also, the money wasn't managed very well. And, and that was on me to an extent and kind of how I appointed people so, you know, you had money that wasn't managed well, and we were really running a, a deficit after a while. You know, we were in a lot of money trouble towards the end, and that meant there was no time to send out a mailer. So I wish I did send out some conventional mail. So stuff like that, you know, you think a lot about um, once it's over. You know, how, how could we have gotten to that 50, 51%? Um, it's why you see a lot of, you know, a lot of first-time candidates lose or you know, or, or, or they, you know, struggle in some ways. Um, so, you know, 
there's a reason for that. And, and, and it's certainly, it's, it's, it's a learning experience of being a first time candidate. I think second campaigns tend to be stronger than first campaigns. Yeah. And would you run again? Not for that seat in particular necessarily. Would I run again? I've been asked this before. I, I, I give the, the politicians answer of never <laughs> say never. I, I, you know, it would, it would have to be the right situation for me. Truthfully, it's, it's very taxing on your personal life. Um, I, I couldn't really write during the campaign. Something people don't realize, unless you have a very forgiving government job or just some employer who likes you, you've got to like quit your job and run for office. Like if you're not making money while running. You know, I, I envy these politicians who can run for perpetually run for other offices because they're collecting their government salary. <laughs> I basically was going broke for 10 months. Um, I mean, I, I had savings. I, I'm fortunate in, in that I'm, I'm one of the millennials who actually is good at saving money. And, you know, I had a very loving um, partner, you know, who, who she, and she was working and she was really supporting me. Um, and she was really carrying the weight during that year. So I, I was, I was very fortunate in that regard to have someone who supported me a hundred percent and to also kind of be able to coast on money I had saved. But financially it, it, it's very, it's very taxing. It, it takes, it takes a lot out of you and and this is something that you know people on the outside don't get so i i really enjoyed running i i did uh, i found it very worthwhile you know i made a lot of good friends i i met a lot of people there's a lot of people who supported me and it's it's the sort of thing you know if the right situation came along if it was the right time in my life it was, if it was the right office i would i would think about it you know I don't think I would want to do a state legislative race. I, I, I participated in that. Um, I, you know, your, your prize is going up to Albany, which is, you know, an incredibly important task because the state government really controls everything. But it's also tough to commute to Albany half. The, you know, that's 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 personally very tough. So you know. Um, it, it, would, it would really have to be the right situation for me to, to, to do it again. Yeah. Um, my cousins grew up in Schenectady, so right outside of Albany, and uh, I like New York a bit more. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very pretty up there, especially in the summer. Um, but it, but you know, the legislative session runs from January to June, so if you're a state state lawmaker, you're going up there Monday Monday to Wednesday, Monday to Thursday every week in essence, minus a few breaks un until June. So, you know, if you have a family, if you have friends, you're, you're, you're gone almost half the year, you know, riding Amtrak trains or driving. So it's, it, it's, it's a lifestyle. It, it, it's a very, it, it's a very different, you know, way to live. And, and I, I don't know if I would want to live that way. <laughs> You know, as I've thought about it more, I really like New York City, and I like I like doing what I do. I really I love what I do. I love writing. I, I love um, you know, do, doing my my journalism, my columns, my essays, you know, my my Substack. I, I teach as well. I, I teach journalism at a NYU and, and St. Joseph College in Brooklyn, which I really enjoy too. So you know, it, it'd be a lot to give up to to do it again. But you never know. It's a great experience. I think everyone should do it at least once. If, if you've got 
it's a time and you've and you've got the district and, and, and you've got the moment i would say go for it cool yeah that's a a politician's answer but i, I like it um sure. Yeah, so I want to switch gears into talking about the current pandemic that we're all living through. Um, you've written a bit and, and talked a bit about uh, New York City and New York State's response to this. And the kind of like, I, I think this might have faded a bit, but there was this narrative that like Andrew Cuomo was doing this amazing response in New York. Um, and he was doing these press conferences and the tight t-shirts and people were horny for Cuomo. And there's this like whole kind of buzz and like, is he going to replace Biden secretly at the convention? Um, which obviously didn't end up happening. But, you know, you've written and, and I've read elsewhere that like New York really did a bad job handling this. And, you know, you look at the death count and it's just so much worse than so many other places, even scaled for population. And case numbers now are much lower than they were. Um, they haven't really spiked back, back up like some people feared. Um, but can you just take us through like what New York has done wrong and specifically de Blasio and, and Cuomo and how they've failed it? And, and what they've done right, if, if anything. Yes, no, no, certainly. So I, I would only disagree slightly and say, unfortunately, I don't think the narrative of triumphant Cuomo has left us. I think a lot of people are convinced Andrew Cuomo did an outstanding job in responding to the coronavirus pandemic. And they are convinced he's the reason that we have very low infection rate today and that he saved the city and the state. And, and that narrative, which was really propagated by a lot of prestige mainstream media, a lot of pundits, a lot, a lot of people online and on cable TV, that narrative has not left us at all. Um, I wish the opposite was true, but it's not, and, he, and he's broadly popular. That all being said, you know, a Andrew Cuomo's sins were committed in March, you, you go back to the fact that New York was late to impose a shelter-in-place order when the virus had already been raging for weeks. Uh, you know, B Bill de Blasio, as late as March 17th, was saying that New York City should pre prepare for a shelter-in-place order, a shutdown order, and Cuomo said, no, we're not going to do that. And, and this is chiefly because de Blasio had suggested it first. Um and then on March, it was about March 22nd, he finally announced New York Pause, which was his, his rebranded shelter in place. You know, California and Washington State shut down first, and they saved a lot of lives that way. They closed down the schools first. Cuomo was late, as was de Blasio, to order a, a shutdown of the schools. De Blasio's communication... And, and his leadership in the early days of the pandemic was horrendous. And he was encouraging people to go outside, repeatedly downplaying the virus. But so is Cuomo in early March. And there are quotes you can find where Cuomo is comparing it to the flu. He was still saying he was going to shake people's hands. He was joking about whether the St. Patrick's Day parade would be canceled or not. And he was someone who was taking it very lightly, even though there were already confirmed coronavirus cases. So, so you start there with, with the very slow reaction time that cost a lot of lives. You know, the bulk of the death happened in that month and in, in April. You know, the, the seeds were planted then for what was the worst catastrophe in, in New York City history, one could easily argue. 30, 32,000 dead statewide, um, you know, 24 or so thousand dead, 23 at least in New York City. 
of course, those numbers will never be exact because there are people who died from COVID who are never tested. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have a, a very late movement to take this seriously on the part of de Blasio and Cuomo. And, and Cuomo, as governor of the state, has a lot more power than de Blasio does. So he, the burden falls on him, and, and he failed miserably in that context. And then you have other very bad decisions. You know, Andrew Cuomo's management of, of the nursing homes has been a travesty. Um, there was a very controversial um, order that was given in March that nursing homes had to accept, um, re- had to readmit COVID-19 patients who had gone to hospitals. So you're talking about you a nursing home resident gets COVID, goes to a hospital. Um, the nursing homes would have to readmit them. The Cuomo administration did this because they were worried about hospital capacity. But, you know, it, it's it's fairly clear that, that letting COVID positive patients back into nursing homes who, who had very little in the way of PPE helped further uh, what was already a disastrous situation there. And, and at least... 6,500 died in nursing homes and, and probably many more because the state has a very strange way of counting nursing home deaths where if you if you are a nursing home resident, you got sick from COVID and they transported you to a hospital and you died in a hospital, that's not recorded as a nursing home death. It's recorded as a hospital death. Uh, to this day, the Cuomo administration has not given a good explanation as to why that is. So it, it creates faulty counts and, and unreliable data, certainly on the nursing home side. Um, you know, coordination between the hospitals is very bad between the public and the private hospitals. And, and, and that, you know, that goes back to the state not having a system in place to really have a strong coordination because you had hospitals that w- were um, extremely overloaded with patients and others that were not. You can, you can talk, too, uh, about the ways this crisis was years in the making, particularly with the hospital sector, where you know, New York City and New York State ha- has been consistently closing down hospitals over the last 20 years. You know, Qu- Queens, which was the, the epicenter of the epicenter at one point, you know, the, the, the worst-hit borough for a time in New York City and, and maybe the most impacted place by coronavirus in the entire world, um, had a problem with hospital capacity. Um, and that was in part because Queens had lost, steadily been losing hospitals over the last two decades. And Andrew Cuomo, as governor, has been very committed to closing hospitals, to reducing healthcare spending, reducing Medicaid spending, cutting Medicaid funding to, to hospitals, to public hospitals. So that was a contributor um, to the crisis and to the fallout from the crisis. And, and in terms of what the, what's been done right, I would say after Cuomo and de Blasio got it horribly wrong and, and created a situation where tens of thousands would die, they were much more aggressive about enforcing social distancing, a, a real shutdown order, letting it be data-driven. And so, you know, I would say in, in the months since, Cuomo and de Blasio have been more more, I would say, competent in, in, in terms of how they are, are managing the response. But 32,000 people are dead, so that, that, that's of little comfort to all of those who've died. You know, it, it's like saying, well, you know, 
it, or or you know I actually tweeted this. It was like it would be like you know George W. Bush declaring victory for stopping an airplane from hitting the Empire State Building, right? Well, tough. Uh, not not really any solace for those who died that day. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and yes. there's this one stat. Uh, this is an estimate from Tom Frieden, the former CDC director. Um, and take it with a grain of salt. You know, it's hard to estimate these things, but. He said that if New York had implemented stay-at-home orders 10 days earlier than it did, it could have reduced mm, yes. COVID deaths by 50 to 80%, um, which is just astounding. Yes, and that's actually no, old, yes. and so it might actually be like higher um, now as a percentage um, because you know these things, like the, if it's not so bad at the beginning, uh, you have fewer people who are active um, and spreading the disease afterwards as well. It's the, ol- the only... We don't know a lot about COVID... What we do understand about COVID-19 and, and highly contagious viruses is social distancing, mask wearing, these things work. And so had New York had New York City at the very beginning of March, you know, let's say March 1st, let's say the end of February, even said, we've got COVID cases, we are going to have to really shut everything down for a few weeks until we can track and trace this virus isolate those people and get this under control, you'd have had far less that. Even use an example like California, which is now battling a second wave, which handled the, the virus very well initially, it appeared to get hit again, perhaps reopening too soon. Uh, one could argue that their overall death count in a state that is much, much bigger than New York, I believe is maybe 12,000 people. I, I would have to check what today's numbers are. That's a terrible number. It's a, it's a horrible horribly high number just 12,000 people some odd people who are dead right yeah, it's, 12, it's staggering 17 according how to much you. is it 12,617 as of 12,000 right so so that number has been climbing you know may, maybe it'll climb higher maybe 15,000 people it'll climb to perhaps even 20 and and then and you put in the context of New York state a, a much smaller state lost 32,000 people so even if California weathers two successive waves and, and, and struggles to contain coronavirus, it will still have a fraction of the death that occurred in, in New York State. And Cuomo can blame that on density. He can blame that on facts of life in New York City. But we've seen much denser cities weather COVID-19 just fine, you know, starting with places like Seoul and South Korea. So I, 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 I and others who take this seriously, do not blame density on coronavirus, um, on, on the spread and, and on the on the high death. I, I blame decisions by human beings. And Cuomo ha- ha- really failed in those initial days and weeks, and we paid for it. And, and now he is, if you want to talk about the economic fallout of, of coronavirus in New York State, you are talking about a tremendous loss of, of tax revenue. Um, you know, loss of business activity and real holes in the budget. And Cuomo is adamantly uh, opposed to raising taxes or even borrowing money to help fill those gaps. He is asking for federal aid, which if it arrived would be great. But Donald Trump is not giving aid to New York State, not anytime soon. So instead, he is in essence been committed to an austerity regime of withholding aid to various towns and cities and that is going to hit new york city very hard uh, if he doesn't take 
seriously the notion of raising revenue. And right now he's refusing to. I believe he's cynically doing that because he would like to shrink city and state services. Um, and he wants to then blame it on Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, he refuses to raise any more tax revenue, even with like very popular taxes. Um, there's a campaign. I, I'm forgetting the name of it. You might know um, trying to get people to support uh, tax increases on the rich in New York's uh, New York. State. Yes. Yes. Do you, do you there, there's the name of that? Um, good question. I should know. Yeah, it's on. I, mean, I know you know, working families parties involved in a bunch of organizations pushing for various wealth taxes. Uh, that I, I forget off the top of my head. I'll, I'll have to look it up. Um, but but the, you know you have elected official, a lot of elected officials that are behind this, rightfully so, and it you know in in a more sane environment it would happen. You know New York State raised taxes. At, in the aftermath of the Great Recession in 2008, New York City raised property taxes after 9-11. So this is not a new approach to budget deficits. It is not novel. It is not radical or even terribly left-wing. It is just common sense economics that it's better to have more revenue and not have more unemployment. But Andrew Cuomo really functions from an austerity mindset, you know, like a I would say a traditional Republican. So he, he has never been fond of raising taxes. He believes they'll chase out rich people. And it's, it's, it's going to be a big, big problem if federal aid doesn't show up and, and that aid is not showing up. Yeah. And, and uh, the campaign is called make billionaires pay and you can you find uh, the details at make billionaires pay.info. I'll include a link in the show notes. Um, I spoke with another guest about Cuomo and uh, we talked about this. And it's it's a great site. They have specific proposals and um, Senate and Assembly bills uh, linked for each of them um, where where they exist. And yeah, they're all like, if you're a normal person, I don't see why you would oppose this unless you have some kind of like idea that rich people will just leave and it will decrease that's, the tax revenue overall. That's but, his belief. But the evidence for that I don't think is very strong. <laughs> no, the evidence is not very strong. Ironically, when Cuomo was dismissing this idea of raising taxes, you know, he was mo- he was mocking the suggestion in a in a press conference, and he said, "I talk to rich people all the time, and and they're not in New York City; they're in the Hamptons, they're in the Hudson Valley." You know, it's a way he perpetually likes to take digs at New York City because I believe deep down he doesn't he's not very fond of the city; he has an anti-urban mindset, and. And what was funny is he was using this to argue against raising taxes, you know, given, well, the, the rich people aren't in New York City. Why would they go back? And, and well, that's why you would raise a state tax, <laughs> a state income tax, because the Hamptons and the Hudson Valley, the last I checked, are in New York State. Um, the rich people are, are not hiding out in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Connecticut. They are hiding out in New York State. They've simply retreated to their country estates which reside within the boundaries of New York State. So this idea that these very wealthy people in the Hamptons would all collectively decamp if their if their taxes increase slightly is silly. Most of them wouldn't even notice it. You're, you're talking about a few percentage points on a supreme amount of wealth. So Cuomo is a deeply disingenuous governor. And he is a absolute roadblock to real
progressive change in the state. And that's been true for 10 years, and it's going to stay true as long as he's in office. Yeah, uh, sadly, I agree. Um, but yeah, I, I want to move over into, you mentioned like the budget deficit um, as a result of tax revenue cratering, and this is leading to a ton of cuts. But one place where the cuts are actually pretty unsubstantial is the NYPD. Um, and so there was a lot of there were a lot of calls following the death of George Floyd um, at the hands of police to defund police departments um, across the country, or at the very least, cut their budgets pretty su- substantially. There's a lot of disagreement about what defunding even means. Um, and then New York City, I think the council and uh, De Blasio agreed to cut one billion dollars from the NYPD. Um, I looked into it. It's not really what happened, even if you construe things in the most like generous way to the people who made mm-hmm. that claim. Could you just kind of break down the political situation, the claims that were made, and then like what has actually ended up happening? Sure. So so the actual cuts were less than a billion dollars. The NYPD has around a six six billion dollar budget, just under six. It's one of the largest expenditures in New York City. It's not the largest, the Department of Education is actually the largest, about 27 odd billion or so. So, you know, there was a call to cut one billion. It did it was not a billion, it was less. Uh, it was in part had to do with you know the shifting of school safety agents from the um, NYPD to the purview of the DOE, which while this was a this was something that was derided on the left as, you know, shifting around um, you know, just shifting around deck chairs and, and not really accomplishing change. Um Mike my counter to that is simply that uh, this has been in, in education circles a long-term goal to get these of uh, school safety agents out of the purview of the NYPD and let and let the Department of Education oversee them. That being said, was this any sort of structural change in the NYPD? No. Was this a serious reduction in funding? No. Um, the, the this began, and, and I actually wrote a piece for the Appeal about this before George Floyd was murdered, um, where you have had mayors across America who were pursuing austerity budgets for other departments and agencies, but not police. And um, defunding means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. To some, it means abolition. To some, it just means cutting funding. The, The one aspect of this that has never seemed very fair is that the the NYPD and, uh, and, and police agencies in other cities have always been able to shield themselves from budget cuts while other agencies take huge cuts, whether it's parks, whether it's libraries, whether it's um, education, whether it's social services. So the NYPD has always been able to insulate itself from budget cuts, and this was true again. You know, The backdrop of this is we've had a, a, a pretty significant spike in shootings in New York City, like other localities across the country. You've seen a rise in the murder rate as well, um, not to the catastrophic levels of decades ago. To put it in context, it's more of a, a rise to the murder rates of you know 2011 or 2012, you know, not 1975. Um, at the same time, you know, that backdrop politically made it hard for some Democrats to support a cut. There were actually black city council members who were pushing back against the speaker to not cut the NYPD. So that actually created a pretty complicating factor with 
a lot of black activists and, and people on the outside pushing for a severe cut. And then, you know, or I shouldn't say severe, just a significant cut of some kind. And, um, and for that money to be re redirected in social services, then you had the actual elected officials who um, were much more defensive of the NYPD. So that, so that was a dynamic at play. Um, and, and so not, not much ended up changing. It was one of those budgets that pleased no one. The conser conservatives could scream and cry that the city council was cutting the NYPD and attacking the police, you know, barely true. And then progressives could say, you know, rightfully so, that this was not a, a significant cut of any kind. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, you know, the cut is basically, as you mentioned, the shift to education of a bunch of people who are like in schools. Um, but then also three quarters of, I think, a different section of the cut is just reduction in overtime expenses. Yes, um, which, ha which is like not realistic specified. or recurring. Um, no, it's and it's, not. it's certainly not a structural change, right? It's like no, not at all clear to anybody who follows this and, and wants to see like real systemic reform. Um, what good is coming out of this this session? No, it, it's it's not structural change at all. And you know, the 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 the, the real pr problem with the NYPD is it has been very hard to hold them accountable. They, they really function as the, you know, a, a rogue city state within New York city and, and no mayor has really been able to corral or, or confront them in a serious way. Yeah. De Blasio um, seems afraid of them. Um, and and yeah, he, he I might I have good reason true. to be right. Like his daughter was arrested in one of the protests and they doxed her. They released her public yes. information. Um, yes. And they threatened to plant drugs on her in like a forum posts and, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It just seems like it's kind of terrifying if you're an elected official and like the people who guard de Blasio are police NYPD officers, officers, yes. correct? Yes, they are. They're union members and yes, absolutely. So they, 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 they hold a lot of power over elected officials. I do believe that's starting to change. You are seeing Democrats less willing to take money from the PBA and, and just the, the, the union of the police officers and, you know, less willing to toe the line of, of the police unions. You know, you're, you're seeing a real shift underway and the, the PBA president Patrick Lynch is speaking at the Republican convention as we record um, on this night. So, Lynch and the PBA have firmly sided with Donald Trump. That will make them more toxic within New York City, and that will make Democrats um, less willing to be allies and perhaps more willing to confront them in their stranglehold on the criminal justice apparatus in, in New York City. That may be a big shift we'll see in the coming years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think we're just going to need to look to other cities and states to see the actual progress that that might be made and at least seeing things that are tried. Um, I I don't really know the answer. I, I definitely support um, large reductions in the number of police and the invasive role that they play in, in the lives of so many people um, and the protections that are afforded to officers uh, that allow them to kind of hurt and kill people with impunity. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's like much deeper dive I need to do on this, but, um, 
we're not going to be seeing many laboratories for this in New York, at least. You know, what you know, it's gonna be very fascinating to see. You know, a new mayor is gonna be elected next year. Um, a new city council. So that 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 may be the first time we see some sort of reimagining of police. I I I don't know what form that will take or if it can happen, but it appears we're closer to that than we've ever been before, and and we've never been close before. I don't know if we're close now, but we're closer where for decades there was really no momentum around any sort of serious police reform. Even minor changes and tweaks were, were beaten back furiously, and a lot of politicians uh, capitulated. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's certainly the fastest I've seen public opinion move in, in my short life so far. Um, and it's it's been exciting. Um, I just want to see the energy translated into into policy and, and lasting change um, wherever possible. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's starting to happen in New York, but there's still a long way to go. And you, you saw the repeal of 50A, which was a law that shielded disciplinary, disciplinary records for police for decades. And that was just repealed this year. It was one of the most... I would say um, it, it, it was it was one of the most absurd laws in the country, and there wasn't really one one like it in most other states. And so, for the, for the first time, the legislature moved against the PBA and repealed that. That was a big step, but that hadn't happened before. So you'll see moves like that, but that's that's just a start. You know, that's a transparency move that's still not going to change the fundamental nature of policing, and, and that that will be a much longer process yeah if you have transparency without any meaningful accountability or mechanism for um yeah disciplinary disciplining or firing officers or bringing charges against them then you know it might infuriate people and i guess that could be uh really useful in generating kind of mobilization around um fighting fighting against police brutality uh but yeah transparency without accountability is is a little bit empty yeah um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree completely. You know, without, without serious um, change, you know, t- to the actions that, that these heavily armed people take, if we merely know a bit more about them, it won't be enough to make a difference. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's like criticism of this campaign, which is like eight can't wait, um, calling for like eight quick and easy, you know, reforms that a bunch of cities and states have done and can do to decrease uh, police killings by like some, you know, pulled out of a hat number. Um, I might be disparaging it too much. I like, there's certainly a lot of thinking that went behind generating the number, but um, a lot of people push back and said like a lot of these cities have these policies in place, but they're not being enforced. Right. Like there was a ban on chokeholds in New York, but um, Eric Garner was still killed by a police officer choking him. Um, and, And so if you have the rules on the books, there's like this concept of, de jour like the books uh, the laws on the books and then de facto like what's actually happening on the ground right um and it, it's just empty without any kind of enforcement yeah no it's it, it's it's certainly it's a big question of 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 what you know what can be done i i think looking to other countries is, is certainly something we should do i'm very intrigued by how germany does policing i i believe recruiting 
a different type of police officer is important. I think education is incredibly important. You know, to be a police officer in Germany, you have to study far more than you would in the United States of America. Um, you know, certain places, police aren't armed at all. You know, less police officers with weapons responding to crime, to, to alleged crimes and to situations where it may be more of a mental health emergency and you need a mental health professional there, not someone with a weapon. Uh, I, yeah. I, I do believe, and people have, have mocked this, this idea of social workers for cops and, and it's not so simple and straightforward. But what it means is you know, if you have a situation where someone is mentally disturbed, why not have a social worker there with a cop if the social worker you know, doesn't, isn't, didn't sign up for corralling a, a mentally disturbed older person with a baseball bat, you know, as what happened in the case of Deborah Danner in, in New York City a few years ago, an elderly black woman who was shot and killed by a police sergeant. You know, um, and she and she was schizophrenic. Um, she she had had some severe issues. You know, and had there been a mental health professional there, she could very well be alive today. So the, 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 those are some of the ways we can start to think about this. I reject the DSA position of police abolition. I do believe that is naive, and I I don't see a society anywhere in the world that functions without police. If you can show me that society, I will study that society and be very curious as to how it conducts its affairs. Unfortunately, you need police to solve crimes. You need them to hold those who break the law um, in, a, in a serious and severe way accountable. Um, if you read a lot about you know, poor communities and those who, who experience high levels of violence and, 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 and those who just don't have really a lot of resources. You know, one thing they talk about is they don't want no police, but they want better police. They, they want to see when their friend is murdered, they want to see police officers solving the case and closing the case. And tragically, depending on the police depending on the locality you're in, the department you're in, the police department is, is quite incompetent, quite poor at, at bringing justice for, for family members and, and for those who are killed. So that, that's like an element I, I do think DSA does not always get. And if you spend time in poorer communities, communities of color in particular in New York City, very few of them are calling for the end of policing. They are calling for the end of police harassment. They are calling for police who are not corrupt. They're calling for police who do not kill unarmed people, but they're not calling for no police. And I think I think that is an important distinction. And there there is a popular call for defunding. Certainly, um, it polls well in New York City among Black voters. Um, not so well nationwide. And, and depending on the locality, there should be defunding. The NYPD is a, is a budget that is too large. It is a budget that is not accountable. It is a budget that's, it, it's, uh, that's highly militarized, and, and there's a lot of waste in there. And, and I, I am very sympathetic to efforts to, to cut the budget of the NYPD. I can't speak to every police precinct, though, so I, I, I wouldn't 
make a blanket call for every department in every locality in the nation. Because as far as I know, some of them may have been already defunded by past budget cuts and, and are functioning on a shoestring as it is. Um, so I, I also, I, I, I see a way forward, you know, looking to other countries. How, how are other countries policing and not killing people? You know, why is it in Germany they don't kill as many people? And why is it in Japan they don't kill as many people? You know, what, what are they doing that we're not doing? It, it's the same thing with, with healthcare, education. I, I always believe in looking elsewhere and, and trying to find best solutions from that. And, and I believe that's probably the most progressive and rational way forward. And um, I, I don't see police abolition as being the way forward. Though many people do, and I, I respect them. I, I, I don't see it as either a popular demand or, or something that can be implemented. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess to try to defend the position a little bit, and, and again, it's something I'm not as well versed in. I, I've worked more on prison reform and, and edging into prison abolition efforts. Um, Pr prison abolition is, I, I, I see that as a more interesting and, and, and worthy goal, certainly reducing the number of prisons. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. But I yeah, mean, go, prison is just bad. No, it's like, yeah, the, there's some really compelling evidence that shows that in the United States, prison is crimogenic, uh, as in it, it creates more crime to incarcerate more people. Um, and the reasoning is like, yes, you're incapacitating people, um, while they're in, in prison, so they can't commit crime outside. And this analysis excludes crime within prison, which is rampant. Um, but then people just come out worse, <laughs> and they're much more likely to engage in crime yeah. again as a result of going to prison in the United States. And the deterrent effect of longer sentences is just really weak. Um, there's like some interesting academic yeah. research on this. And so it's actually like a pretty well-informed position to have to say, no, we should reduce incarceration uh, wherever we can um, in the United States. And that will actually, in addition to like all the human uh, benefits and the cost benefits, like it will just reduce crime. Um, in policing, the academic evidence is more mixed, right? There's some research showing that having more police involvement in a community can decrease crime. Um, that's not to say that's the only thing that can decrease crime. The, like I'm not super well-versed on the evidence. And there's often ways that like, you know, having more police involvement can make things worse. Um, as you gave an example of a police officer shooting somebody who is mentally ill. Um, but, but yeah, I, I guess the abolition position, like nobody who I know who like is really, really well versed in this is like, you know, tomorrow there should be no cops. We should have like complete um, freedom from police in every facet. It's more of like, that is the, the end goal is to have nobody who is walking around uh, with the capacity to, to kill you or hold you against your will. Um, and there will be some, like, I, I think it would be naive to say there's no agents of some kind of state or organization that have coercive power um, to respond to emergency situations. Because, like, wh when people say police abolition, I think everyone goes to, like, the mass shooter or the serial killer and if you don't have an answer for that, um, then people aren't going to take it very seriously, even if those are very rare occurrences um, and like may not actually be deterred that much or protected that much by police in the first place. Right. Right. It, it, it's, I, I would say I, I'm very sympathetic to, to the, the cause of, of ending prisons or reducing them radically. 
I don't see the value in life sentences. Um, yeah. I, I like that in, there are countries where you are sentenced 20 years and, and that's your maximum, um, you know, barring th their willingness to extend the sentence. There is a certain point where people are, are less violent and no longer a threat to society. And that seems statistically is when they reach middle and older age. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I taught in a, a prison in college and the warden oh, wow. said something that stuck out to me, which is that um, if he could choose who was going to be let out, it would be the murderers. And this was a maximum security prison. So, yeah. Um, you know, everyone in there was in there for a pretty long time and, and for felony charges. Um, and I'm trying to remember his reasoning, but it's like when you kill somebody, it's, it's very clear what you did. Um, and it's this very like definitive thing. Right. Um, and I think it, it might just be something you reflect on a lot more and, and maybe they're in there for longer. Um, it might've been something influenced by like, I mean, a lot of murders happen when people are drunk or high on yeah. something else. Um, and maybe, you know, in the absence of that, there or not being like 19 years old um, and, you know, in a situation where it's likely to happen again, you may just not be a threat to anyone. Um, and, and I think like this is a pretty astounding thing to hear for, for most people because, you know, murder seems to be like the most obvious thing that people should go to prison for. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, I think a Scandinavian style prison in, in Norway or something like that basically is abolition compared to the United States yeah. because you're reducing the number of people incarcerated uh, by like, I think over 90% um, on a per capita basis. And, you know, that's like most of the way to abolition and quibbling about like the, the really rare cases, I think detracts from the overall force of the movement. Yeah. The, the Scandinavian system is certainly should be an ambition for the United States. I, I, I do believe treating prison that way, if it's going to exist as a place that's focused on rehabilitation, our prisons aren't focused on that. They're there for corralling people, pushing them away and spitting them out to society after a certain period of time and telling them that you're on your own. And what do you do to someone who's been locked away for two or three or five or 20 years? How are they supposed to rebuild a life? It's almost impossible and it's not logical. Yeah. So you know, thinking about how do we re rehabilitate people is should be the sole goal of a prison system, and and unfortunately, it is not the goal of ours, and it is and is failing in that regard. And yeah. we need, ironically, you know, we need we need less prisons, but those that exist may actually have to be a bit better funded if you're going to go to the Scandinavian model of really making them these very pleasant rehabilitation facilities that that's an interesting discussion as well you know you'll, you certainly would have an overall reduction because you'd, be, you'd hopefully be closing many many prisons those facilities that remain you're going to want to have some serious state funding put into them if they're going to be adequate at the job of rehabilitation that's just kind of interesting yeah thing to think about yeah you could have a situation where like the the overall funding is much lower but the per capita funding is actually higher um, yeah, which, I mean, if you're offering like a full spectrum of education and, and, uh, training courses and like whatever it might be, um, you know, that, that could look very different. Uh, yes. Oh yeah, for sure. But yeah, not a popular <laughs> position to take because you're going to be making somebody angry, you know, 
to somebody on on the left, they might be like, well, you're just increasing the amount of money you're spending on incarceration. Yeah, but I, I, I imagine else, it's like you're giving them like college, and you know, I my kids paying or I'm paying like 200 grand for my kid to go to school. But of course, if we had a Scandinavian prison system, we'd probably also have free healthcare and higher education. Um, right, right. I, I having a Scandinavian prison, you know, is not cheap. I'm sure it, it's just there's a lot less of them. Um, so I would hope people think, th you know, if we get to that point, think think a bit more rationally about that. And that no, no one is calling for funding the the expansion of prisons, you know. But if if you're going to make the few facilities that remain not even prisons, but rehabilitation facilities, you know, places where people who've commit committed crimes can go and try to be better, be better people, but also kind of, you know, get, get a real, if it's an education, if it's training, if it's really uh, a means to be more productive in society you know we, we need we need facilities that do those things and, and the question the question is how, how do you get to that and that's be a long time and it, it's it's a definitely a bigger discussion yeah yeah and uh i guess i i want to end on a, a bright brighter note which is sure uh we talked about it a little bit but there was elections in in june new york state um for state assembly and state senate and uh these went very well for people on the socialist left. Um, you mentioned already that the four candidates for state office in New York uh, that were endorsed by DSA all won. Um, yeah, primary as well as the the incumbent. I should say yes, Julia Salazar. Julia Salazar, who is the incumbent running for re-election, won. The four challengers all won. Yep. Yes. Yep. And, and then AOC uh, as well in Congress. Yes. Um, and and you had an interesting article about this, um, which is the only comparable period for the American left was a hundred years ago. And New York state also had five socialist assembly members yes. um, and a socialist member of Congress repping the lower East side. And um, I, I just think it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, I don't read too much into this, but it's a, a neat symbol to like a hundred years later, there's five more people um, and seeing the pictures side by side is, is pretty cool. Can you take us back to that period of time, what things were like and then how it compares to now? Yes. So the big difference between DSA and the socialist victories of 100 years ago um, is that the socialist candidates were winning on third-party ballot lines on the socialist party ballot line. And, and the reason they were running on the line was because there wasn't really any means to contest the Democratic Party ballot line. This was before the era of open primaries. And uh, the, the Democratic Party strictly controlled their ballot lines. The Republican Party strictly controlled their ballot lines. So if you were a socialist, you know, you, A, were not wanting to run on a Democratic Party ballot line because you didn't, you, you believed they were capitalists and, and were not in league with your cause, but also you, you literally could not. So when the socialists won and there were assembly members who won, there were city council members who won, there was a socialist congressman, Meyer London, who's a very fascinating figure on the Lower East Side. They were defeating Democratic opponents. They were defeating Republican opponents. And this was an era when the Republican and Democratic parties had a real strength in New York City. So they, they had to overcome a, a twofold opposition. And so on one hand, that makes their victories quite impressive. 
On the other hand, it sealed their fates because in, in our political system, it's, it's very hard for third parties to survive. We've seen this over and over again. Third party movements do not have long shelf lives. The Socialist Party could not compete with the twin forces of the Democratic and Republican establishments, which each wanted them defeated. And they also struggled with um, co-option, with the Democratic Party swerving left in the 30s to adopt much of their platform. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the Socialist candidate for president in the 30s had the most had the hardest time when FDR was on the ticket. And there was actually a lot of grumbling in socialist circle that FDR was quite a conundrum for them because he was not a socialist. He was a Democrat. He was an establishment pro-capitalist Democrat, but he's also implementing many of their policies. Social security, that was socialism that came out of the Socialist Party. You know, the, the New Deal, the federal works projects. And he was even hiring socialists. He was bringing them into his cabinet onto his staff his vice president was henry wallace a socialist the real so one FDR, yeah. oh henry wallace yeah. is like and, one and of my favorite got figures for, got dumped for truman yeah which was unfortunate one of the worst mistakes in american history <laughs> it was and so you had a movement that ultimately was just absorbed into the democratic party and and could not and and also suffered from factionalism and, and, and suffered from an ability to just maintain their ballot line and win competitive elections, right? DSA is a, in a very interesting position where I, I they, they've they've taken an approach which was supported by Michael Harrington, their founder since the '80s, which was we we aren't going to build a third party movement. We are going to infiltrate the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party ballot line is a brand. It's something people know. We live in a two-party presidential system. There will not be a rival third party that will have long-lasting power. And we need to run socialists on the Democratic line and win primaries that way. So DSA is doing what is ultimately better for the long-term health of the Democratic Party. Of, of the socialist movement. They're doing what Bernie Sanders did. Bernie, you know, could have run on a third party ballot line. He chose not to. He chose to contest the Democratic nomination because that is the only way to make real political change from an electoral perspective. So in terms of policy and approach, I mean, there, there are a lot of similarities between the young socialists of 100 years ago and the socialists of today. Certainly the, the ones back then were all white men and today... They are not. They're quite diverse. That the, the politics that era was different. But um, the socialists that era, while they were white men, they were also immigrants. They were Jewish. They were um, from the underprivileged immigrant groups of their era. So they were not simply the powerful privileged elite. They were not the white Anglo-Saxon uh, Protestants. They 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 were a, a mix, and 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 the the Jews especially were, were very involved in the early socialist um, movement, and and they were you know one of these uh, early you know Im immigrant groups, as were the Italians as well, who, who at one time were not even considered white. People forget. So then, as and now, you have these immigrant uh, groups getting involved. Um, I would say DSA is probably more of a college-educated um, contingent than the socialists of, of yesteryear. Um, those socialists, that came out of the garment worker movement, um, the early labor movements of that era, 
more more working class, a bit more immigrant than probably the DSA today. But the DSA today is definitely built for longer lasting success, in part because they are running as Democrats. Julia Salazar is a state senator. She's a member of the Democratic Conference. That she's not getting expelled from Albany. The, the socialists of 1920 were thrown out of the state legislature by the Republican speaker. That is not going to happen now. It's not going to happen to AOC either. Nancy Pelosi can hate her all she wants. She's an elected Democrat. She's part of the caucus. She's here to stay, just as all the socialists who were elected in June are here to stay. So that, that's really the biggest difference, and it's a positive one because – you are going to be hearing from these socialist elected officials for a very long time. They will have long careers in office. Many of them will rise in office. And you may see one day a socialist mayor of New York. Maybe you'll see a, a socialist governor. You never know. Um, but it's, it's certainly, while it's a dark time in, in many and all respects, there's also a lot of hope for the left. And so I, I am very optimistic about where the socialist left is going. It, it absolutely has never been this strong for many, many decades. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just uh, put a finer point on, on one of the things you said, the candidates who won, I think are all in their late twenties or early thirties. Um, yes. And these are seats where people typically hold them for, for decades. Right. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I, I only know Zaron and Jabari uh, personally, um, and I've seen them speak. And like they, they are very talented politicians, right? And, and I don't mean that in, in a pejorative way. Um, just like extremely warm, charismatic people. Yeah. And and some politicians, some candidates, it's like, you know, you run the campaign almost in spite of their abilities. Um, and then some, uh, like Tiffany Kabam was like this as well. Just really bring down the house, and they're like the best speaker in the room, and. Uh, bring that kind of energy that could catapult uh, a larger uh, political career. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, it's 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 a lot of young talent that has entered office, and, and that means they, they will be the decision makers of tomorrow. And, and that is a very exciting concept for for a lot of us. Yeah, and and New York State also has uh, majorities of in the Senate and and the Assembly for Democrats, and so this is yes. a position where. You know, you could be far to the left of the median Democrat, but you can at least influence uh, legislation that's going to happen. And Julia Salazar was the one socialist in Albany um, and played a pretty big role, uh, as I understand it, in the rent reform and, and housing uh, legislation that came out of the last session. Yes. Yes, she did. She, she, she played a very pivotal role in pushing those bills and, and she is someone who has influence and Jabari Bridgeport will have influence as well and there will be more on the assembly side and, and yes they, they are all Democrats they're all fairly young they're all pretty talented so they cannot be ostracized and excluded like the socialist of yesteryear which is what happened because they were not members of the two major parties the two parties could come together and try to diminish their influence as much as possible. And that's ultimately what happened. Um, so DSA is, is taking a much wiser path. In the defense of the socialists of 100 years ago, there was not an opportunity to co-opt the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was too organized and too strong and would repel those efforts. And 
would not let its ballot line be contested. Very different story today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I don't know, in, in the wake of Bernie's loss and the DNC happened recently and like, I didn't follow it too closely, but uh, a big part of the takeaway, as I understand it, is like, hey, leftists, go fuck yourself. We're really catering to conservatives and moderates um, with with our approach. And, you know, there's a pretty strong tendency, at least among like left social media to say like, hey, fuck the Democratic Party. These guys hate us and there's no future for us here. Um, but I think these successes really provide a strong counter example. Um, right. And, and if Bernie had won the nomination, he, there would be a lot of resistance. But ultimately, I think the party would have fallen in line in the same way that the Republicans have to Trump with like obviously some big differences. Um, but like when you are the candidate and you're a Democrat, um, they might try and endorse your opponent like Ed Markey. Uh, Joe Kennedy was endorsed by Pelosi. And there's situations like that. But ultimately, you still have a lot of protection as being the Democrat in safe seats. You do. And I, I don't think Democrat, I don't think progressives and socialists should, should walk away from the 2020 Bernie campaign thinking we can't win. This is rigged. Let's leave. You can win. You certainly can win on the congressional level. You can certainly win on the local level and maybe you'll win on the national level too. The Democratic Party as an, as an organization is, is a far weaker organization than it once was. That's just true of political parties in America. They are not these top-down hierarchical organizations that they used to be. For all the complaints about the DNC, about the power they exert, the old school method of politics really before the 1970s, the open primary era was um, party bosses picking candidates for president, picking candidates for Congress, picking candidates for state Senate, and so on. The, we live in an era when party bosses cannot handpick congressmen anymore to the degree they used to. They cannot handpick presidents even. Jo Joe Biden was not even necessarily initially the handpicked candidate. They couldn't really settle on one. For a while, some of them were drifting to Bloomberg. Um, and, and the Bernie candidacy as it existed in 2020 could not have existed in 1980. Would not have been able to raise the same amount of money and even contest the the primaries in the same sort of way. Yeah. That's yeah, something and I, I, I think that is very important to keep in mind that for all the ways it can seem like the left is thwarted, there are still many, many opportunities for success. And you can't allow defeatism to overwhelm that fact of life which is the terrain is much more open than it used to be yeah yeah if, if you take a longer view it's it's kind of it's kind of hilarious to like be like wow uh I, there was a comic about this and it was like you know 2012 uh like a socialist reading group doubled their membership from like three to six people um and they're so happy about it and then like 2020 it's like oh man like our candidate just barely lost like the uh primary to be the democratic candidate and eventually the president um and we have like tens of thousands of people in dsa and, and elected officials across the country uh, at different levels of government and it's like we're like really really fucking it up we're doing badly and you know the the counter is sometimes like well climate change means that like we don't have enough time to wait for the perfect candidate um we might not get to run somebody for president uh, next cycle who has the experience of the name recognition to do well, although AOC will be 35. 
Um, but you know, I, I think it will always be better to get more leftists in power, in my view, um, even if it comes too late to do as much as we would like about things like climate change. It's already too late to do as much as we would like. Um, and it doesn't mean we should stop fighting or, or give up on the endeavor. I would agree. You can't give up on electing leftist candidates to office. Even with climate change, climate change doesn't mean you snap your fingers and the human race is extinct. It means the human race becomes more precarious. It means we have to adapt. We are in many ways past the point of mitigation and past the point of being able to turn back the clock. We cannot. The, the clock has been set in motion. On one hand, that's terrifying. That means we are entering an age of great instability and terror. Conversely, it also means we're entering the age of adaptability. It means there may be certain parts of America we can't live in anymore. It may be abandoning the coasts. It may mean building differently. It may mean adapting to warmer weather. It, it may mean parts of California should not have people in them, especially close to forests that catch fire every year. At the same time, and, and this is where maybe I depart from some of the most ardent voices on, on the climate debate, that doesn't mean we're defeated and dead. I think there's a human race in 100 years. I think there's a human race in 200 years. I think there's a human race in 300 years. What form does that human race take? Where is it living? What does the country look like? These are all open questions. But it does not mean we simply have to resign ourselves to not fighting for outcomes in democratic politics because the earth is warming and there's great instability. It means that we are going to have a more unstable country and maybe an uncertain country, but we're going to have to have a country. We're going to have to have laws. We're going to have to have policies. And who is setting those policies? You don't leave it to others to just set the agenda. You try to set the agenda yourself. So we are, we are entering a very different world, a very unstable world, but we adapt. The, the human race is is going to adapt and, and is going to survive in a form. And and it may even through certain progresses thrive. And and that and that is something to keep in mind as as we go forward in, into the twenty first century, into the twenty twenties and beyond. And it's it's important that factions of the left don't lose sight of that. You know, we, we do these election cycles matter, and it's not just the national stuff; it's the local stuff. It's really trying to hold a party. And sorry, you cut out there at the end, but um, I, I generally co-sign uh, and agree. Um, I, I think defeatism serves no political purpose. Um, neither does triumphalism. Um, we we did lose the the big one this year, and it is like a great tragedy. But uh, there are a lot of opportunities to succeed in other ways um and also beyond electoral politics uh like the massive strike waves and labor organizing that's been happening in the wake of the pandemic uh is is very welcome you know I, yeah i i was you know ma making this overall point that there is going to be a country there is going to be a, a human race for for the next decades and the republican the republican party for for a long time has been very successful at setting the agenda getting their policies achieved in Congress, in the states, in the courts, and the left 
can only hope to be so successful in the next decade. And his goal should be to be that successful, if not be more successful. And the left cannot afford to be defeatist, to resign itself, to, to tune out of the political process. You must tune in. You must keep fighting. There is a lot to achieve. And the future of working class people, of, of, the, of poor people, of the most disadvantaged in, in society depends on this. It depends on the left continuing to be engaged, continuing to win victories, and continuing to be a, a countervailing force in the Democratic Party and, and in politics writ large. Yeah, no, totally agreed. Um, and, and I think, you know, this is not to lose sight of the things that exist beyond electoral politics, um, like labor organizing protests and um, tenant organizing. Like there's a lot of exciting stuff that's been happening outside of just the ballot box and, and candidates and campaigns. Um, and I, I think, you know, there are finite resources. People don't have infinite time and energy for, for these activities, um, but it's not always a zero sum game or an either or. Uh, Bernie's campaign kickstarted the, the socialist movement in the United States. Um, and DSA's membership can largely be attributed to to that campaign. That's not to say it existed in a vacuum. There was a financial crisis. There was Occupy. Um, but, you know, the success of candidates like the ones who have won in New York, like AOC, um, inspired others, they inspire me. And uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to, to get involved in, in this stuff. Um, joining DSA is one of them that I would definitely encourage people to, to do. Um, yeah, volunteering for a campaign, uh, getting involved with Tiffany Caban's campaign with How I Met Zaron, and then supported his campaign. And his was the first one where I actually got to see uh, the campaign win, which is just like, it's really cool. I was at the <laughs> Caban victory party um, when we thought that she won. Yeah, Felt yeah, like that was pretty wild too. And um, obviously she ended up not winning by, by so few votes, um, but really did change the entire conversation around uh, the criminal legal system in, in New York and Caban, I don't think is gone from the political scene either. So even in defeat, you can uh, find some victories. She, as of today, is running for the city council oh, next holy year. Crap, I, I missed that. <laughs> ver very yeah. likely win. So she'll she'll have that uh, Astoria council seat maybe come 2022. Oh, that's awesome. That's, um, yeah, three hours ago. Wow. I'll, I'll include a link to that. Um, yeah, I, I wrote a uh, a piece in Jacobin about why Caban would be transformative and uh, learned a lot about prosecutors and district attorneys and, and the role they played in, in mass incarceration in the United States. Um, in a nutshell, you know, if you had to point to any one group of people who have been responsible for the number of humans locked in cages in this country, uh, it is prosecutors. And uh, Caban is part of uh, yes. a wave of people who are, some call them progressive prosecutors, but uh, I think decarceral is a, a better term uh, because it focuses on the problem yeah. at hand, which is to get fewer people in cages. Yes, uh, absolutely. The, the, I did an, ess an essay for the Baffler uh, summer of 2019 on that exact topic on the progressive prosecutor and the, lim the limitations of the current system and, and kind of how prosecutors fed this incarceration boom. So it's a, it's a topic that, that absolutely is very, 
an important, very important one. And, and it's one that rightfully so has gotten a lot of tension over the last yeah. few years. Well, Ross, uh, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, where can people find you online? I already mentioned the Substack. Really recommend to anybody, especially if you're interested in New York, but you write about a, a wide range of topics. Yes. So you can find me on Twitter, just at Ross Barkan, um, R-O-S-S-B-A-R-K-A-N. Find me on Substack. It's rossbarkan.substack.com. Please sign up. Please subscribe. Um, funding is very important for it. You can find me in The Guardian. I, I write a, a column of national politics there. You can find me in The Nation. I'm a contributor. You can also find me in other publications like Gothamist, um, GQ, from time to time, and, and others. And, and, and you can also go to my website. It has some of my work, rossbarkin.com. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll include links to all that stuff. Um, it's been a fun conversation. Thank you again for taking the time. Yeah. No, it's been great. Thank you for having me. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the podcast and validates my self-worth. If you don't enjoy the show, please keep your thoughts to yourself or email me at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Babrowitz.